So glad that you're here this morning. Good morning to all of you watching and listening online. Good morning to our Poor Perry site. And as we just announced about Pastor Mark and Pastor Joel and Pastor Lori, let's give them a huge hand on this huge day. We're so proud of you, so glad that you helped lead this church. And uh, God bless you today. If you've got a Bible this morning, I'd love you to turn to Acts chapter 8. We'll be hanging out there again. As I was saying last week, as we dive back into the book of Acts in this new year, it is amazing what God is up to. We plan our sermons almost a year before we do them, and just again, the timing is so striking to me as what God is now doing among us and what we're being called to do and how the sermons are connecting. And like I shared last week, we need to lean into each one of these sermons because God is literally asking or doing the things that we are reading in the scriptures in our midst week in and week week out. If you were with us last week, our story began at a very difficult time in our history as a movement. Stephen had just been murdered. It is the first Christian martyr in our whole movement, the spilling of the first Christian blood just because he loved Jesus and proclaimed him as Savior and Lord. Well, from there, the church began to run for its life, and there was a clash of supernatural kingdoms in Samaria. Then there was a mass conversion of multiple Samaritans under the preaching of Philip. But yet now in the passage that we're in today, a, a new thing comes comes into focus, uh, a new place is explored. There's a person who has come from the deep far south, and God is about to meet this person. God is active always in furthering his own work, make no mistake about it. And if you read Luke, Luke now looks to the inclusion of non-Jews into his church, though the church at this moment in its infancy has not struggled or clarified its attitude to the rest of the known world. God is always a step of all people, including the church. And God steps in again to further his holy agenda, to reverse the effects of Babel, to restore Eden, and to continue to bring the kingdom of God on earth as it already is fully established in heaven. Now, we're going to read this passage, but as we read it, we need to stop right up front. Whether you are a teenager or a young adult or an adult, whether you've done church for years or not at all, no, no matter who you are, stop and listen to what I'm about to say, especially if you've done church for a while. See, we need to see the real, radical, shocking nature of what is about to unfold. 
We who have done church for a long time and heard some of these passages again and again, we continually miss the true power, the earthquake-like event that we actually sitting in here, Ajax, all of you up in Perry, any, Port Perry, anyone listening online, we have benefited from this event, and yet we miss the true earthquake-like experience. Our story, like I said, continues with a character named Philip. Philip was one of the seven deacons that was called to deal with the serving crisis back in chapter 6. When the persecution began, he ran for his life and he went to Samaria. And there he was used by Jesus like we found out to do miracles and healings and deliverances. He actually proclaimed the story of Jesus Christ and the message of hope to his ethnic blood enemies. And many of them joined the family of God and said yes to Jesus as Savior and Lord. But here's what we miss in the middle of all of this. Philip was an Orthodox Jew. He had been taught his whole life that the Samaritans were nothing more than half-breeds and garbage, and non-Jews were worse than Samaritans. Orthodox Jews living across the Roman Empire at this time would have been taught by their rabbis and by their parents and by their community that since they actually had the Ten Commandments and since they had the Torah and the prophets from Genesis to Malachi, since you have learned it from childhood, since we actually own, literally have the scriptures, you are superior to the rest of the world. You as Jews, we as Jews, they would say, actually know there's only one God, there are not many, and we know him. He called us, he didn't call the rest of the nations. We know God's will for the world, we know God's will for families and relationships. We can discern right and wrong, which makes us as a Jewish people spiritually secure and superior against every other race. We, they would say, are far beyond the ignorant masses that flock to idols and demons and put their life and hope in fate. Now, at the time of Jesus and just beyond, Jews believed that everyone else would be judged except the Jewish race. One great common tradition claimed that Abraham itself would sit at the gate of hell to keep all Jews out regardless of what they had done. One of the greatest thinkers during this time actually wrote these words, they who are the seed of Abraham according to the flesh shall in any case, even if they be sinner or unbelieving or disobedient towards God, they will still share in God's eternal kingdom. Many Jews, they believed that they were immune from God's wrath simply because they were Jews. So a religious, righteous, devout law-keeping, circumcised Jew would never dream in their wildest dreams that he would be under the same condemnation or look the same before a holy God as a pagan neighbor like a Roman or a Greek or a barbarian. One of the great prayers that was prayed by Jewish men in the day was this, Blessed are you, O King of the universe, O God, who has not made me a non-Jew, a slave, or a woman. Wow. Now in Acts 2, Philip, who's a devout Orthodox Jew, comes to Pentecost, and him and then thousands that day and tens of thousands later, suddenly devoted religious Jews realize under the power of the Spirit of God that they also need a Savior. Actually, they realized everyone needed a Savior, the most religious, the most pagan, and everyone in between. And in that moment, as we're going through the book of Acts, thousands of years of religious presupposition and misunderstanding are now being overcome by the presence of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. 
Think back to the beginning of our series. God, through Peter, stands up in Acts chapter 2, and he begins to preach during the high holy day of Pentecost, where hundreds of thousands or maybe up to a million devout Orthodox Jews came to celebrate God's work, and he stands up in the very first Christian sermon and says, you're in trouble too. We as Jews need saving too. We need the gospel of Jesus, who's the Messiah. Everything we've been trusting in, our ethnic background, our religious actions, our outward marking as men of circumcision, having the law and obeying the law in part will never cover or deal with the significant problem we have called sin, death, rebellion, and brokenness and separation from the God that we know better than the rest of the world. See, there's no double standard. Jew and non-Jew make up the human family and they all need the same Savior. Philip had in part experienced what Paul would articulate years later in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned. See, when you understand the Jewish ethnic religious worldview, you understand the radical nature of that verse you've quoted since Sunday school if you've grown up in the church. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of the great I am, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by the Messiah, Christ Jesus. See, when you know Philip's background, or Peter's background, or John's background, or even Mary, Jesus' mother, or James' half-brother, when you understand their orthodox history and what they had been taught, then you begin to see the radical change happening, and the power, and the nature, and the God-given, out-of-the-box love of God, not just for one part of the world, but the whole world. See, this actually changes how you hear two of the most familiar verses in church. Remember that Jesus, his last words to the early church, all made up, by the way, of Jewish people, Orthodox Jewish people, when he said in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, therefore, go and make followers, disciples of what? All nations. Are you joking me? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey? Are you joking me? Do you even care about those people? Acts 1.8, the foundational verse in the book of Acts, presumes that God's heart is larger than the original church believed. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit lightens upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. They go, no problem. Judea, of course. Samaria, really? Ends of the earth? No, 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 no. And God says, yes. When the Holy Spirit of God, the same Spirit that hovered over nothingness at creation, the same Spirit that was found during Moses' encounters at the tabernacle, the giving of the Ten Commandments in the time of Solomon, the same Spirit that filled the mouth of the Jewish prophets, when He falls upon you, He will not not only comfort you and lead you into all truth, He will empower you and impel you and force you to witness to even those you hate or think that I, God, do not love or you do not even think I want to save. It will take a spirit move to change your heart so much and readjust your theology that you will love your enemies and you will suddenly realize you are spiritually no different than them. Not by voting, not by violence, not by making one group look like another, not by manipulation or forced conversion, but by the spirit of Jesus Christ. 
Self-sufficiency and self-confidence always brings death in our movement because we can never be sent out to overcome ethnic, religious, historical, sin, the demonic. The, the non-stop barriers go on and on. Jesus says at the beginning of his movement, I am sending you out not in your own power, not in your own ethnicity, not in your own theological understanding. I am sending you out with the power, the breath, the very person of God, and he will give you the fruit of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit, and you will be sent out on the mission that God's Spirit, by the way, actually already is already doing. You're just trying to catch up to where the Spirit of God is working. It started in Jerusalem in Acts 2. We saw it. It spreads to Judea suddenly, shockingly, last week. Jewish people are going to the Samaritans, the ones they hated, those distant cousins who they didn't even want to admit were cousins. They begin to start embracing the gospel and the good news of Jesus. Peter and John show up and unify the church. But now, the beginning of the ends of the earth comes into focus with one person. It says in Acts 8.26, these words, Now an angel of God said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. So Philip is in this booming, unbelievable ministry. He's not in Jerusalem. His life is no longer being hunted or threatened. And suddenly an angel appears and says, I have a very specific task for you. My master has sent me. You need to obey. And by the way, his obedience has rippled for 2,000 years. Philip is commanded to go south to a desert road. Now, if you know the area, it's a very known road. It's actually the road between, uh, between Jerusalem and Gaza along the Mediterranean coast. Just think about it like their Highway 2 or their Mini 401. Now, south is better translated at noonday. So this is an unbelievably unusual command. Number one, an angel shows up, should pay attention. Number two, he says this, I want you to go out during the worst part of the day in desert-like conditions under the noonday sun. And Philip says, and what do you want me to do? And the angel says, I'm out and says nothing. So Philip goes to a place he knows nothing about. Now watch this. This is important. This is the beginning of what the Spirit of God, I truly believe, is speaking to our church. Philip leaves this thriving, unbelievable, I cannot believe this is so amazing ministry, to now go to the wilderness of the Judean foothills with no assignment other than to wait. The Samaritans have now been included in God's family, generations of hate and distrust and violence overcome by the message, the power, and the presence of Jesus and his spirit. Big crowds for Philip, big miracles, deliverances, big things, and God now comes to Philip and says, hey, Philip, by the way, thanks so much for risking your life in Jerusalem. Thanks so much for feeding all those widows back there. Oh, thanks for including the Samaritans and taking the big step, and I now need you to leave the big circus and the big show and go somewhere else. And Philip says, well, of course. So Philip leaves. And on his way, it says in verse 27, he meets an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in the charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. And interestingly, this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. Now, as I preached within the last year and a half out of this passage, this man is from the kingdom that no longer exists. It's called Moreau, which today is made up of modern Sudan and southern Egypt. Now, not only was he not Jewish, strike one against him, but number two is he is a man who's working for one of the strongest pegging powers of the day. 
Not only was he working, but I actually found out when I researched this that the kingdom of Moreau was one of the wealthiest countries on earth during this time because it was the main producer of iron and gold in the whole known world, and it had become the trading post, one of the key trading posts throughout the whole Roman Empire, and this guy is the chief financial officer of the whole deal. Now, not only is he Ethiopian, not only is he wealthy, not only is he educated, then we find out he's a eunuch. So you're going, what's a eunuch? Well, he's a man who has his, he's been castrated. Let's put it that way. Now, why is he being castrated? Was he born this way? Probably not, actually. In the ancient world, eunuchs were put in significant positions because of their proximity to the royal line. This man worked directly for the queen who ran the country, and the continual obsession by leaders in all monarchies is that the monarchy cannot be threatened by rape and or affair. And so all the officials, if you want a high governmental official position, you have to give up some stuff to get there. Some guys are like, I'm out, no problem. Amen. Oh, amen. Even more so. Okay. Now, it says that this man worked for Candace, Queen of the Ethiopians. Her full historical title, if you look it up, is Queen Mother, Ruling Monarch of the Ethiopians. She was, as, as she was actually in charge and ran the whole country because her, her husband, who was the king, was considered the godchild of the son and too sacred to actually engage in any formal administration or duties. He needed to be religious and live life and enjoy life. And like I said, a year and a half ago, some women were like, I got a godson at home too sitting on the couch. Yes, I know. Different series. Now, here's the point. She ran the country. The guy did nothing. And this is her right hand. Now, this person has gone to Jerusalem to worship. This education-based pious figure is desperate to find the true living God, even though he himself is born pagan and he's serving a king who himself considered himself and his country considered him a god. Now, he goes to Jerusalem to worship. These are called God-fears, non-Jews trying to get close to God. Here's the problem. When he would get to Jerusalem, he would be emphatically told, though he was worshiping, he would never be included in God's family. It was impossible. Why? Number one, he's not Jewish. But number two, he's a eunuch. You're like, well, what's the problem? Well, beyond the cut, there's something deeper. In traditional Jewish law, it is actually declared in Leviticus 21 and Deuteronomy 23 that anyone who is born a eunuch or made a eunuch is impure, disgraceful, and cut off permanently from the people of God. So you've got a man who's the wrong background in the wrong ethnicity, working for the wrong system, whose actual body is declaring him separated eternally from the covenant of God's people. And yet he still comes to worship. So we should not be shocked that when God looked over the hundreds of thousands or, or millions there, he said, I'm going to start my movement with the most impossible situation. I'm going to start my movement with the person who is banned from me. Now this gets more powerful and more intriguing when you actually begin to read the Bible together. If you know the Bible at all, you'll remember there was a moment when Jesus, when he was alive on earth, was actually in the temple and freaked out and lost it. Do you know what I'm talking about? He walked into the temple and he started throwing over tables and actually built a whip and started whipping people. Meek and mild Jesus, not so much. And as he's doing it, he is so unbelievably angry. And when you grew up in church, you heard, well, it was wrong to sell things in the temple and in church. No. 
That's not why Jesus was angry. Because the Jewish people of the day set up the market to sell all the sacrificial stuff in the court of non-Jews. The only place on earth where non-Jews could formally gather to get near to God, and it was extremely distant, they set up the market there. Because in the end, God doesn't really care about all those other people anyway. So in Matthew 21, Jesus says, It is written, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. You say, well, John, how do you know? He's quoting something. He's quoting Isaiah 56.3. He is quoting God's very heart and his promise to welcome and include all people, all people who could not have access to him. Here's what Jesus was doing when he was literally kicking over tables in the court of the non-Jews. He's quoting Isaiah 56.3. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to God say, the Lord will surely exclude me from my, his people. Oh, and let no, what? Eunuch. Complain, I'm only a dry tree. And foreigners who bind themselves to God to serve Him, to love the name of God and to worship Him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold fast to my covenant. Ready? These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Jesus was saying to His people, God had promised to bring all people through the Jewish people and the temple and eventually the Messiah, Jesus, and all people could have a relationship with the living God. Eunuchs, non-eunuchs, Jews, and non-Jew. And that is why Jesus came. And it is no shock, it is so amazing that God's sovereign decision with the first contact with the non-Jewish world would be an African pagan eunuch desperately trying to find God, but being banned by his own people. I guarantee you when Jesus was freaking out appropriately in holy anger and kicking over tables, he was thinking about this man by name saying, my spirit's going to go get him when I'm done with this. The story continues on his way home after he had been worshiping. He's sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet, and the spirit of God told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. So Philip's sitting by the 401, seeing all these cars going by, and he says, I want you to go to that car. Not that one, not that, that one. So he goes. God speaks very directly to Philip, gives him a prompting. It is no mistake that at the precise time that Philip is sitting there, this chariot goes by. God is orchestrating this. So Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet and said, oh, do you understand what you're reading? Now, this is really critical I preached this last year, let me say it again. When you read Luke and Acts together, Luke continually makes the point there's a difference between understanding and really understanding. There's a difference between intellectually getting something and truly getting it. By the way, that's why so many people can sit in C4 week in and week out, hear sermons preached, hear God's truth from His Word, sit in a connect group, hear personal stories of deep transformation, sing worship songs, witness baptisms, and never still cross the line of faith because understanding biblically is a sovereign, beautiful gift. 
God in his mercy not only has given this man who's been told he'll never be accepted his written word and also helped him get to Jerusalem, he's actually sent a very specific person to help him meet this God. See, here's the brilliance. He's going to move from formal, distant, unknowing religion to an intimate encounter. And this man, this man we're reading about will be the first of hundreds of millions and then billions of us as non-Jews who are about to meet the living God of the Israelites through the Messiah, Jesus the Son. Philip says, do you get it? The guy says, no way, how can I? Unless someone explains it to me. And so he invited Philip to come and sit with him. Now just stop. We read that so easily. You gotta understand something. Orthodox Jews were told that their spiritual condition before God would be affected if you sat or ate with a non-Jew. To eat with them was a sin. To be in their presence to do business, sort of okay. This, if he sits in the chariot, he's breaking oral law. What's Philip going to do? Philip gets in the chariot. Philip makes himself unpure according to his own people because he knows God is among us in doing this thing. I love also that this man is asking for genuine help. This is not information gluttony, Googling something so you just get more. No, no, he wants to know. He wants to understand. But here's the significant thing we need to wrestle with today. This man of extreme wealth and extreme power and extreme privilege humbles himself to get help. He says, I don't get it. You're some Jewish wandering guy. I have no clue who you are. But if you can help me, get in my Lamborghini because I got questions. So Philip gets in, and this man humbles himself and says, explain it. Now the eunuch was reading this passage out of Isaiah. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter as a lamb before the shearer is silent. He did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Okay, he's reading Isaiah 53, one of the most significant Old Testament prophecies about Jesus and the Messiah. This Old Testament prophecy, go home and read it if you're in your connect groups this week with your study guide. By the way, you should be taking notes right now. Uh, You read that passage together. Because in Isaiah 53... It says that Jesus, this Messiah, would be a righteous sufferer who would deal with the world's sin, would be crucified, and yet when he would be taken to trial, he would be silent and there'd be injustice. So the eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news of Jesus. Now, this is why this is so amazing. Not one letter in the New Testament has been written yet, not one. Nothing. Zero. There's no Galatians, no Romans. If you walked around and said, hey, have you read the book of Revelation? People are like, what are you talking? Nothing. Philip, without one word of the New Testament, so understood that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament that he began to actually outline how Isaiah 53 was, perfect, was perfectly fulfilled, not by Isaiah, because it's not about Isaiah, but by Jesus, who was from Nazareth. And he walked through Jesus, the righteous sufferer, Jesus, falsely accused, Jesus, deprived of justice, Jesus, crucified, Jesus, risen, Jesus has brought victory over sin, death, and the demonic, and now through repentance, anyone, including you, can be found in God's family, forgiveness of sins given, and eternal life assured. Well, as they're traveling along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, hey, look, here's some water. Remember, it's right on the Mediterranean. Why shouldn't I be baptized? The response is this man gave his life to Jesus, got baptized. 
No class, by the way. Notice this. No baptism class. No waiting period to make sure he really understood it. No, well, you need to sort of become a super Christian. No, no. You've met Jesus. You've embraced him like me. Good. There's some salt water. Let's dunk you. And they go. He gets dunked. Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. He says, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. Over and over again in the book of Acts, no matter who the person is, we see the same pattern. Number one, there's the preaching of the good news of Jesus. Then there is repentance. There's humbling. There's desire. There's turning from one life and self-trust to something else. There is belief on the person of Jesus and on the work of Jesus. Not just mythology. No, this is real. This is true. He lived. He died. He rose again. He's the only one who can give forgiveness of sin. And after there is repentance and there is belief, then there is always baptism, the outward symbol of the inward work. Philip says, since you've crossed the line of faith and you've declared Jesus, of course, of course you should do this. So he gave orders to stop the chariot and Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. Again, let me just say this. Most of you know this, but maybe some of you are visiting. Baptism doesn't make you a Christian. Baptism is not a super like zap moment spiritually. Baptism is a symbol of what you've already agreed to. We always use the analogy of a wedding ring. It is the outward symbol of the inward agreement and covenant. It's the symbol of being washed clean. It's the symbol of actually being loved by God. It's a symbol of being possessed, baptized in the Spirit when Jesus moves in by His Spirit. It is also the most significant way we as Christians publicly confess and believe and identify with the death and physical resurrection of Jesus. It's what Paul said in Romans 6, 3, do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And we therefore were buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Jesus was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we may now live a new life. For we have been united with him in death like his, we will certainly be united with him like a, resurrec- like a resurrection like his. And so Philip was saying, I'm going to now declare that you've been given the forgiveness of sins. And also as I baptize you, I know that as I will be physically raised one day, because Jesus was physically raised one day, you now, my brother, will also be physically raised one day. When you know Philip's history, do you see how radical and insane this is? Well, it says, when suddenly they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch never saw him again, but went on his way rejoicing. And Philip, it says, preached the gospel until he reached Caesarea. Now, I've preached this before. Let me say it again. When you read the text, this wasn't sort of like Philip going, hey, that was awesome. I have another appointment in a Starbucks thing. I got to go. No, no. It says he whoop, disappeared. This is like, this is Star Trek. Whoop, 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 gone. Oh, freaky. Go Jesus. He teleported him away. You can talk to Philip about that in heaven. What happened to the man? Whatever happened to this Ethiopian eunuch? Well, there's no reference to him in Scripture, but there's lots of references to him in church history. This man went home and started talking about Jesus the Messiah. And amazingly, he founded the church in Ethiopia, and you know it as the Coptic church today. And all sorts of people for 2,000 years will trace their roots back spiritually to this man going all the way back and proclaiming the good news of Jesus because an Orthodox Jew decided to obey. It's amazing when you look at the power of this passage. I wrote this, what could make a Greek Orthodox Jew love a black Ethiopian eunuch African? What could overcome suspicion, culture, different worldviews, race, misapplied theology? Well, it's, it's Jesus. 
Within eight chapters in the book of Acts, and we're just getting going, by the way, Jews, both Hebraic Jews and Greek Jews, Samaritans, and now a small part of Africa have been included in God's family, and Jesus is just starting to get going. See, this has been the agenda of God since the beginning. And let me just say this once again, though I say it a lot. What worldview, what psychological degree, what therapy session, what political movement, what military junta can ever come close to this? What work on earth provides peace and forgiveness and love and hope that not only people are willing to be around with each other and love each other in ways that are unnatural, but actually people in the end are willing to give up their lives for the person they have never met, and they are willing to forgive those who do the murdering. It's every single time it's Jesus. Luke shows here again and again that God is no respecter of persons. The obstacle of age, religious tradition, race, ethnic origin, economic or educational status, physical condition will never bar someone from the option of joining the family of God found in and through Jesus Christ. And this demonstration of biblical inclusiveness, and by the way, let me say that, not modern inclusiveness, biblical inclusiveness is that all people can meet God through Jesus and they change under the Lordship of Christ. This demonstration of biblical inclusiveness started in Acts 1.8 is found fully in Philip. Saved in Jerusalem, helped his church established in Samaria, went to the foothills of Judea, and introduces the non-Jewish world to the good news. Philip is Acts 1.8. Now, as we gather here today, there's a lot of different things I need to share for different groups. So if you could lean in, I'd appreciate it. To you who gather week in and week out with us who are seekers and skeptics, you who are spiritual or unreligious or deeply religious from another faith, Let me just share this with you. The Bible is clear that every single human being basically is a spiritual eunuch. Disgrace, separated from God, all of us gone our own way. And no matter what we try doing or not try doing, we never ever can deal or cross over into relationship with God. No matter how good you are, profound you are. Remember, this man traveled all the way from southern Ethiopia to Jerusalem to worship even though he knew he would never get close. And that did not save him. That did not overcome the great barrier between him and a holy God. No matter how good you are, religious you are, dedicated you are, and or pagan you are, or bad you are, or spiritual, no matter your money, education, family background, it is never enough to deal with your sin and my sin between and before a holy God. The story, this story shows that all of us as humans can only deal with our separationness and our brokenness and our spiritual death and sin through Jesus alone. By the way, this is the scandal of Christianity if you want to know it. That a God-devoted, righteous Jew like Philip and a God-searching yet separated Ethiopian eunuch and as we'll see next week, and Saul, an ISIS basic sort of murderer, all are in the same condition before God. All need salvation. All need the same Savior. All need the same work. See, that blows our mind because we think if we're good enough, we're kind enough, we're Canadian enough, God is going to accept us. No, our sin is too large a chasm, and everyone on earth is in the same boat, and everyone needs the same Savior. That's why it says in 1 John 4, 9, and this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one only son in the world that we might live for them. This is love, not that we were loving God, but he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. What must you do? 
If you are a person who's never crossed the line of faith, you have never embraced the gospel of Jesus, you have never said yes to him, then you have to be like this Ethiopian. You have to admit you don't know everything. You actually need to admit that you need help. You actually need to humble yourself, not just between you and myself or someone else. You need to humble yourself before God. See, people who refuse to humble themselves will never find a Savior because only those who know that they are in deep trouble look for saving. You need to invite Jesus into your car and say to him literally at this moment, I need you to save me. By the way, if you've never done this, this is a holy moment, holy time. Pray this prayer online. If you're up in Port Perry and you've never done this, pray this prayer. If you're watching in another country or here, pray this prayer. Just say, Jesus Christ, I'm that guy. I'm good and I'm kind and I'm educated. I got money. I even sort of am trying to be good and spiritual, but I need saving. I, I ask you, Jesus, to forgive my sins. I believe you lived and died and rose again for me. And you thought about me. And I turned from my life of sin and I turned from my life of self-sufficiency and I now put my whole trust in you. Give me eternal life. Give me forgiveness of sins. Give me new life. I want to be just like that guy, totally included, not by my own work, but by yours. I pray this in Jesus' name. Start a new thing in me. Amen. If you prayed that, You've literally just walked from death to life. And if, you're with, if you know someone in your family or you've come with someone to believe, like you've got to tell them, I've just done this. But there's another thing that's obvious out of the text. I just need to preach it because it's there. What is stopping me? If you literally just prayed that prayer, then you need to get baptized. You need to go and get in water and say, I have believed. And by the way, this outward declaration of an inward work is for all of us. Brand new Christian in the last 45 seconds, brand new Christian in the last two years, or for many of us who've been Christians for a long time who've not yet obeyed, let me just say this again with no fanfare. Do not let fear, laziness, embarrassment, or pride stop you from the profound act of baptism and letting us celebrate the good news of Jesus. This passage is clear. If you've not got dunked yet, literally right after the service, walk to the information desk and say, when will there be water next? I need in. No, really, get your donkey in the tank, like Dave says, it's time, right? And just say, yes, I'm in. But here's what, as I was working through the passage this week, what I'm about to say, all of that is right and good and proper from the text. But this next moment is what I believe the Spirit of God is saying to us as a community. These next two things, one, this next one's for all of us, the next one is for a small group of us. It's the little phrase, go south. With complete trust and obedience, Philip left one of the most amazing ministries in the whole Bible. Why in the world would Philip want to leave hundreds or maybe hundreds upon hundreds of baptisms? Miracles, deliverances, demons crying out, people being free for the first time, large crowds. Think about this. Even Peter and John came to witness what was going on and said, we've never seen anything like this before. John was Jesus' best friend and Peter was the leader of the church. And they came and said, Philip, this is the real deal. This is actually a pastor's dream right here. This is what every pastor on earth hopes for in their ministry. And this is actually what most Christians desire to see in some form in the church. Hundreds of people being saved, baptisms, physical healings, deliverances. I mean, oh my goodness. And then God comes and says, I would like you to leave it, please. (laughs) See, it's the ongoing move of God that matters the most to God. Now, I want to make this, I want to caveat this as I say this. 
a year ago when we prayed and got where we were going to go, we didn't map this sermon out at this exact moment so I could speak about other things. They weren't connected, but they are. Let me just say this very clearly. C4, God is doing things among us we've never seen. And within the next 24 months, God willing, we're going to have three sites beyond Ajax. And God is going to ask not some of you, but many of you, to leave this site to make significant room. And also, God is going to ask you, and so are your leaders, to leave this site to reach out to your neighbors and friends who live around where you live. You may be willing to drive here. They're not going to. We're going to ask you to leave the bigger show. This is mission over comfort. This is vision. Now, God is going to command some of you to go north to our Port Perry site, as some of you already have obeyed. But as I was praying this week, I had this strong sense. God has actually asked some of you, who actually do not even live up there, to go up there, and you've not obeyed yet because of comfort. Go. If Jesus has specifically asked you to go strengthen the north site, there's a reason why he's asked you. Go quickly. Within 12 months, less than 12 months, hundreds and hundreds of you are going to be asked to go east. And then within 12 months more, God willing, hundreds and hundreds of you were going to ask to go west. Because in those places, there are hundreds and hundreds of Ethiopian eunuchs God is preparing. And as you step out and obey, this is what no one likes to hear, especially if you love this place and you've come for a long time. Someone else is going to take your seat here on Sunday morning, your actual seat. And I can't wait for them to take your seat. And they're going to take your volunteer role in this site. And more people are going to come. And when you come visit the site, you're going to go, who are all these people? And at that moment, we will know that God is one and God is doing his work. We together as one church are going to move from the north to the south to the east to the west in the next 24 months. And hundreds upon hundreds, maybe thousands, will come to Christ. And here's all I want to say. This church now, all of us, need to now become like Philip. Where we all are, our posture is open. We're saying, Lord, what would you ask of me? What do you ask of our whole community? What do you ask of my family? What do you ask of me? And we're really open because in the next 24 months, we're going to be a church, one church, four locations, reaching a lot more people. We're going to see God do profound things. But it all starts with everyone saying, I'm like Philip. If you ask me to stay, I'm in. If you ask me to go, I'll go. What do you say to me? As I was praying through this this week and reading through this this week, it struck me, not because it was intellectually striking, it struck me a prompting that I'm supposed to say this too. Someone possibly is watching online, or maybe you're here, I have no clue, and actually you are resisting coming to C4, and you're probably supposed to be on staff here, and you don't want to apply. So I just need to say this to the camera. Just went right over there. If that's you, apply. Because God is assigning things so sovereignly here that if God speaks, be quick to say yes, because God is up to so many amazing things here. Some of you are called to meet Jesus. Some of you are called to obey in baptism and submit and let us find joy. All of us now need to be like Philip at this unbelievable, amazing, critical moment in our church. And here's the last thing I need to say and then I'm done. So I was praying this week. I think this is for a smaller group. This applies to everyone, but the Lord is about to speak to a small group of you. So this is going to be for you, and it's this. Is God telling you to speak to someone personally about Jesus' son? I mean, that will preach in any sermon, but this was different. I want to remind everyone sitting here today, all of you online, everyone up north, 
that God is working on people way before we get close to them. Remember this man's story. He was already trying to worship, already had a Bible. He was already trying to get into worship services, and he was longing for more. Philip was only the last in a long chain of events. It's divine conspiracy. Our boss corners people all the time. I love it. But we need to be ready to bring the good news to Jesus, of Jesus to anyone he asks us to. And fear can't win. Courage needs to. And the Holy Spirit's promptings can't be ignored. So as I was going through this, again, not with a lot of fanfare, I just had a sense that the Spirit of God was going to impress on some of you, not all of us, some of us, a very specific person. So as we come to an end, I'm going to lead us through four prayers, and I'm going to start with this one, and then we'll see what happens. So Jesus, number one, thank you that you sent Philip to reach out to that man, because actually... The vast majority of us here are not Messianic Jews. We're Gentiles, non-Jews. And that Ethiopian eunuch was us, the beginning of us, that you'd include all of us. So thanks. Thanks for you came for the whole world. And Lord, number one, Holy Spirit, you're here. So if there is a very specific person that you are asking some of us to speak to, I pray you'd literally bring the name into people's minds or their the actual image of the person in their mind right now. So if you've got that, uh, we just pray along with you, Lord, would you begin to clear a path for that conversation? Number two, we as a church are so thankful that you're doing so much amazing stuff in this church. Baptisms and salvations and life change and sites and restoration of this building in a new way and on and on it goes. So we don't want to thank you but we all want to say this, and I, church, pray this with me, please, in your heart. We will be like Philip. You speak, and we'll, we'll go where you tell us. Help us to be ready to reach out way beyond our comfort to a lot more people. So if you tell us to go north, we'll go north. Tell us to go east, we'll go east. You tell us to go west, west. If we stay south, we south. But as one family, we're all saying we're open. So speak, Holy Spirit, get us ready. Lord, we pray for anyone who's not been baptized yet, that they would just obey. And the fear of crowds or the pride, don't tell me what to do, or any, sweep it away so they can point to Jesus and we can celebrate. And lastly, we pray for those who've just prayed to accept you, guard that young faith and connect them. Help us to see their stories flourish. And Lord, if there are others who have not yet crossed the line of faith, we pray over them right now that you would begin to prepare them. So Lord, as we start this new year, so excited for what you're doing. Simple prayer today. Just keep doing what you're doing. Do amazing things, and we pray many, many, many more would be included in the church of Jesus, in, into the people of God uh, through this church and other churches in the next 12 months. So we ask this in Jesus' name, and all of God's people can say loudly together, amen. Could you stand with us? Because we're now just going to take time to respond. And can I just give you a worship prompting? I don't usually do this. While we sing this next song, as you sing the song you've chosen up north, can you just say to Jesus, thank you that you really came for us? Like when you're singing to him, just keep it in mind that God thought about you personally, just like he thought about that Ethiopian eunuch and he decided to come for you and save you. Just get in that place of worship where you're deeply thankful for his personal love. Remember, Philip was sent not to a crowd, to one person. So let's sing together.